Father, we thank you for your word that you have delivered to us, knowing that it is the manual for life, and not only for this life, but for the life to come. We know that there are rewards waiting for us. The more word that we ingest, the more blessings come our way. The more you strengthen us, the more you guide us, the more we hear your voice. So help us, Lord, to do that today, and we pray that you would bless it to our hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we covered Exodus chapter 32 last week, I dealt with the impatience mixed with doubt is a recipe for disaster, talking about the Israelites not seeing Moses for 40 days, and so they got involved in worship of this calf, this golden calf that they had made. And what they did when they didn't have a clear view of Moses or of God, they went to the default setting. And depravity is the default setting. Now, I want to read this one more time just to keep this in context. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, the Lord told Moses to go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. By the way, in that verse, verse 7, God says, go down because your people have become corrupt. If I were Moses, I would have said, my people, aren't these your people? And God says, no, your people have become corrupt. You need to go down there. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Isn't God omniscient? Didn't he know that they would be like this? Does God seem just... A little bit frustrated here? Do you think God is going, these people are stiff-necked? Or do you think he said something like, these people are stiff-necked, Moses. Get down. These your people. Get down there. Now, God created us in his image. And so the way that we act in our purest form, our emotions are real. Laughing, crying, all of these things that we have within us God has. He's the one that created these things. Now, has God ever been sarcastic? Oh, he has. You read through the scriptures and he is sarcastic as sarcastic. He invented it. And when he talks to sometimes these nations and Israel, he just lets them have it. It might as well be a slap in the face. He, the sarcasm is just railing in some of the Old Testament books. And so he's turning to Moses, and I think, communicated from the language here, they are a stiff-necked people. He's talking to Moses, and maybe there's a little frustration there. Maybe there's not. He is omniscient, and I, omniscient, and I don't want to take away from that. But it's going to set up for what's coming. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. Just leave me. I'm, I'm going to be mad at this, right, is what he's saying. I'm putting it in the vernacular of today. May burn against them, and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Referring to Moses. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? So Moses goes, your people. 
First God says, your people. Then Moses says, no, your people. Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, what did I leave you with last week? Do you remember? I said, oh, I'm out of time. I left you with the question, did God relent? Did God repent here in what he was going to judge the people and destroy them? And it says here, he relented and did not change his mind. Now, does God change his mind? That is the question. And I'm sticking in this portion of scripture because this is necessary to go over this to make sure we understand the character of God and who he is. Now, remember I told you there were four people who successfully argued with God? Here we have Moses with a golden calf to intercede for the people and God relented, he repented, he changed his mind. Abraham pleads for Sodom and saved his nephew Lot. And, you know, Hezekiah, he pleads with God to add years to his life, and he does so. And also Mary asks Jesus to perform a miracle in the wedding at Canaan. She convinced him, like he wasn't going to do anything, and she convinced him, oh, woman, what do you, it's not my time, what's going on? And she convinced him to go ahead and do something that he really wasn't going to do or hadn't thought about doing. So we see that Moses interceded successfully for the Israelites, so did God change his mind. I, now, you're going to do some Bible flipping here. I just want to make sure that we cover this thoroughly. I want you to turn over to Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Numbers 23 and verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat in front of you. And I'm sure Daryl will also post it. He's pretty quick about that. Maybe he'll get it up there. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So here we have a verse that says, God doesn't change his mind. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. 1 Samuel Chapter 15, verse 29. It reads in verse 29, Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So we have two verses that say he doesn't change his mind. Turn over to Isaiah, chapter 31, verse 2. Isaiah 31 and verse 2. Here it reads, Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. 
So he does not retract his words. What he says is what he is going to do. The theological term for this is immutability. He does not change. Jesus Christ in Hebrews is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, right? I'd like you to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 19. Now, by the way, I have a question for you. God doesn't change, right? Was the second person of the Trinity always a man? I'll say it again. Was the second person of the Trinity always a man? You guys can't agree. I'm not quite sure. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. Was he born? He was born of a woman, right? He had a belly button because he was born of a woman. Did the second person of the Trinity before he was born have a belly button? No. Okay. So God is immutable, right? But did the Godhead take a modification at the incarnation. Now, stick with me. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the omniscience of God. I believe in the omnipotence of God. I believe in the omnipresence of God. I believe in all the characteristics of the Orthodox Christian faith. Now, we've been here before, right? I just want to establish that up front, what I believe. Jesus Christ is equal to the Father in his essence, but he is also submitted to the Father in his position. And the Holy Spirit is equal to the Son and to the Father in his essence, but the Holy Spirit does the bidding of Jesus Christ and of the Father. And the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ always points to the Father. This is established orthodoxy in the Christian church, and I will profoundly hail it to you. I will not change on that. I am immutable in this particular case. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord did what? Changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Turn over to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. Now we've had three verses that tell us God does not change. He is immutable. Numbers for Samuel and Isaiah. Here in Amos chapter 7, I'm going to read six verses. It says, thus the Lord showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crops began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when he had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with me by fire and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland then i said lord god please stop how can jacob stand for he is small the lord changed his mind about this this too shall not be said the lord god now before i continue here 
this is important. When you go to conferences and stuff, sometimes there's people out front, atheists, and they have these little booklets, and they say, see, the Bible's contradictory. You, what, God doesn't change, and then it says he does change. So which is it? The Bible can't even make up its own mind. We've had verses already that tell us God doesn't change, and now we've had some verses that God does change. Well, let's continue. Jonah chapter 3, verse 9. In the book of Jonah, now you can turn there if you want or just write these down. I'm just going to go ahead and read through these in the interest of time. Jonah chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This is referring to Nineveh and the prophet Jonah going there. In verse 10 it says, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So God changed his mind. Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 16. When the angels stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And this is when, of course, David was taking his census. And he had this calamity come to him. And it was a difficult choice which one he got to choose, whether he's fleeing from his enemies or whether he falls into the hand of the living God. And the number of days, it it varied from three years to three days. And it just wasn't good, right? And the Lord stopped. He relented from the calamity because people were being killed as a result of this. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. In other words, he changes his mind concerning calamity. He doesn't stay on course. And for us, it's like, what? What is going on here? Does God change or does he not change? And we have both examples here. Jeremiah chapter 18 deals with this too. Verses 9 through 10, it says, And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. And there are several verses that go along this line. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 3. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 10. It all talks about this idea that God changes his mind. And so now we have a theological debate. We have a dilemma. Which one is true? Does God change his mind? Or does he not change his mind? It's a great question. Let me ask you this. Is everything possible with God? I believe that. Scripture says that. It says that in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26. It says, and looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Talking about the rich man getting into heaven. Right? riches will keep people out of heaven and these guys said you know what the disciples how is it possible for anybody to be saved he goes hey with god all things are possible but then you read the scripture hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 god did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie so you have everything's possible with god but it's impossible for god to lie see a contradiction in your bible's not true that 
that's what people say. They walk up and they do that. Well, what about salvation? You know the argument. God predestines us and calls us to salvation, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You were called before the foundations of the earth. You were destined for salvation. God made it happen, brought it to pass. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to be glorified. That's it. End of story. God did it, right? Did you have a choice in it? Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved if you do this. So which one is true? God called us, he chose us, he predestined us, or we chose? Yes. <laughs> what about the omniscience of God? I believe in the omniscience of God. We've covered this one before. God knows everything. There isn't anything that God doesn't know. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Yes, Jesus is God. Absolutely. Did he know the day that he would return to earth in the second coming? I'm so confused. Is it yes or is it no? Matthew chapter 24, or yeah, chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The Son didn't know the day of his return. Isn't Jesus God? Yes, he is God. Remember in Luke chapter 8, verse 45, the woman who had the issue of blood, she reached out and touched Jesus, and Jesus said, Who touched me? And people say, Oh, he knew. Really? And some people have made this connection, and actually I talked to Patty about it recently, that it was like, a teacher who asks a question that already knows the answer. Now, for me, the pastor that said that is reading into the text. There is a rule in interpretation. The rule is the golden rule. Eric, if you can remember the whole thing, but it starts out with, if the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you have nonsense. Right? So your first reading with it, do you remember the rest of it? No, I know, it's tough. It's, it, it's like this thing and it spells it out. So if you're reading something and you read it in plain English in a narrative, you're going, okay, it, I know what it says, but it doesn't quite comport with what I believe, but it says what it says. Now there's a danger in that too. For instance, Ecclesiastes 10, 10 verse 19. And you've heard me talk about this one before. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 19 says something is the answer for everything. What is it? Money. Money is the answer for everything. If you don't believe me, you can look it up. It says it right there. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 19. Oh, I'm going to look that up, see if that thing is in there. Is he telling me the truth? Yeah, I'm telling you the truth. And he also says wine makes life merry. Wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. And so, you know, they're like, wait a second here. If wine's making life merry, isn't the person getting drunk? And it, didn't he say in Matthew that the rich man, it's harder for him to get into heaven than for a rich man to fit through the eye of a needle, you know, that type of thing? So what's the deal here? It seems like there's contradictions all over the place when it comes to the Bible. I will tell you, that they are perceived contradictions. They are not, in reality, contradictions.
but our understanding needs to be expanded. How do we come to grips with the idea that God does and does not change his mind? Is our God capricious, unpredictable, variable, impulsive, whimsical, fickle, erratic, or flighty? No, he's not. He knows what he's going to do. He set a course. It's going to happen. But we run into these little speed bumps. And that's what they are. They're speed bumps. You're still going on the road and all of a sudden, whoa, whoa. And some of them are a little bit bigger than others, right? And you've got to really slow down and you've got to take your time going over these things. So remember, one of the characteristics of God is his immutability. And an antonym of that is what I just used, capricious. So he doesn't change where capriciousness is. He's just, whatever he wants to do, he just changes it a whim. Well, God does not change his mind and, or excuse me, can both be true that God does not change his mind and God does change his mind? Well, except it's impossible for him to lie, right? Now, you see where we are? Now, I'm, I'm taking my time on this, so this, it just sinks in. It's like when you water the ground, one inch of water will percolate to one foot. That's how it goes. Now, so far, we're probably at about six inches. I want to make sure we get all the way down there. Now, there are those who would say, and I would caution you on this, well, God just doesn't change his mind, and I don't care what you say. I'm just going to hold to this, all right? That's just fine. God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. And they walk away. Now, how do you think that sounds to an atheist? You're so stupid and closed-minded. That's exactly how it sounds to an atheist. At that point, you just lost them. You are not giving a reason for the hope that lies within. And we're supposed to reach these people who do not believe in God. When we sit down with people who are atheists or agnostics, we better be able to answer them. If we can't answer them, we run the risk of them just going away and not really receiving the salvation that God has predestined them for because they didn't choose. Did you catch that? This idea that we're leading people into the kingdom, we need to give them the opportunity to fulfill what God has in store for them. That is our job to do that. So does God change his mind? Does he not change his mind? I read this one paper by Robert Chrisom Jr. He says this, does God change his mind? It all depends. Now, does that help you? I'm going to give you a couple of points on this. So he cannot change his mind in the sense of making a mistake, backtracking, and trying a new track. Right? God doesn't go, oh, I made a mistake. I need to go back and correct that. You know, get rid of that of me, start over. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go, oh, Father, what am I supposed to do now? He doesn't turn to God the Father and say, I totally made a mistake. What am, you know, how am I supposed to resolve that? God doesn't do that. He doesn't make mistakes. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he never makes mistakes. Secondly, we must make a distinction between conditional declarations of God and unconditional determinations of God. When God comes along and makes a decree, and he says, it shall be, and he kind of sets it in stone, he's not changing his mind. For instance, is there going to be an Antichrist who's going to be judged and thrown into hell? Yes, there is. Is there going to be a time where this world ends? Yes, there is. Is there going to be a time where he raises the dead and he judges everyone? Yes, 
There is. Are some people going to be separated to go to heaven and some people separated to go to hell? Yes, there is. These are declarations. He says, it is going to be and I will not change my mind. But when it comes to something like uh, Jonah, you know, he, he sets it out there and he goes, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm going to judge these people, Jonah. I want you to go and talk to them. Yeah, I'm probably going to judge them. I'm going to judge them. But go talk to them. And so he does this for Jonah, you know, the ungrateful prophet. He goes over there. He does nothing but complain. It's too hot out here. You're going to send me to these people. You forgive people all the time. Why are you going to? I knew you were going to forgive these people. Just a complainer all the way. But God, you know, God wanted to change Jonah. By the way, just a side note. If you're in ministry, if you sign up and go, yes, I'll do this. Be prepared. Because God is not so much interested in changing the people around you, using you to change the people around you. He's interested in changing you. And when the trials come, because iron sharpens iron, guess what? He's going to put people in your path to sharpen you, to change you. And you might think, no, I came here to show you to them. This isn't working out anything like I thought it would. And... Now look what's happened. This mess is here and now I have to fix it. You know, he wants to fix us. We are the ones that have to change. And so God will make these decrees and he'll say, these things are for sure going to happen. It is going to take place. The Savior is going to be born. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be the suffering servant. He is going to rise from the dead. He is going to come back. There is going to be a tribulation. There is going to be an antichrist. All these things are going to happen. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. These are all decrees by God. They're going to take place. But scripture does get a little muddy when God decides to repent or relent. It doesn't take away from the immutability of God. We just don't have clear understanding when this takes place. It's like Jesus is omniscient, but some things he didn't know. It doesn't change the fact that he's the second person of the Trinity. But he is omniscient, as we understand it, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, which I've told you several times. And also, everything is possible with God, except he doesn't act outside of his character. He doesn't commit anything that is a sin. That's why it's impossible for God to lie. So inside of his character, everything is possible with him. And in those sections of scripture where we don't quite understand, it's not that there's a contradiction. It's that our understanding lacks. We don't have full understanding, which for me, it gives me a little bit of security. You mean God's so big that I can't understand him on everything? Uh Uh-huh. Well, how about that? And that's, you know, what the uh, liberal theologians try to do. They try to give an explanation for everything. And some things you just can't explain. There's the documentary hypothesis, if you ever do any reading on stuff like this, that the miracles, they actually didn't happen. It was always something else that took place, whether it's the Red Sea parting and wind came in and blew for a couple of days and it just blew the, the water to either side. And they neglect the scripture which says, no, the water was like a wall on either side. I've never seen a windstorm create a wall of water on either side. And they try to change the scriptures that are there instead of being comfortable comfortable with what it says being comfortable with this this idea like we're predestined but we get to choose in our aristotelian logic we go no it's either this or that in god's economy it's both and he goes ha figure that one out and we can't figure it out especially to those who are naysayers those who come along and say you know you're god i i don't understand him at all i'm just going to walk away and we learn to accept those things that we can't quite understand
And I've seen pastors, they sit out and they say, well, you know, God just, he knows it anyhow. Or he knows it now. Jesus knows it now when he's in heaven. Is Jesus the same yesterday and today forever? If Jesus didn't know something here on earth, do you think there might be a chance that he didn't know something when he went to heaven? Oh, see, now that's, don't be messing with the all-powerful God there. Uh, All I'm saying is our understanding of God is incomplete. Is God ever frustrated? If he's all-knowing, why would he be frustrated? I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to say that before you said it. Yeah. Why should I even answer you? I know what you're going to say. Why should I even get upset? Why should I even talk to you? I even know what's going to happen. You know, it's, but see, God relates to us. So sometimes Jesus was surprised, right? How is a God who's omniscient surprised? Wow, I have not found such faith in all Israel. He's like, woohoo, this is great. Do you see this example? He was surprised. And see, that doesn't go along with this idea that God is omniscient. How can he be surprised if he is omniscient? Is God disappointed? Do you think that Jesus ever did the face palm with his disciples? Lord, it's good that we're here, right? Let us build three tabernacles for you on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, Peter, no. That's not what I had in mind. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them? I have, you know, what's the deal here? Have I been with you so long that you do not know who I am? Man, what have I been wasting my time with these guys for? And you can see that in the scripture where Jesus is like that. Now, Jesus, for instance, when I talked about in Samuel where King David, King David, uh, he was judged for taking the census, right? But if you read that whole story, there's a point where God is grieved over the death of the people. And for me to understand the word grieve, and that's the word that he chose to put in there, I'm thinking he's weeping. He's weeping because these people are dying. Isn't he God God that knows everything and yet he's weeping? over what's happening. You see how all these emotions, all these ideas come out of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today forever. And this came out before he was incarnate. How can somebody be grieved if they know exactly what's going to take place? You know, it's it's like, this is judgment. This has to take place. But God has put in us these attributes as well. And so my whole point of this is that I don't want us to walk away with an understanding of God that is false. We may not understand everything about God, but there's so many scriptures that say, well, he changed his mind. And I've, I have seen commentaries actually say what I told you before. God doesn't change. I'm sorry it says that in there, but God doesn't change. Now, the commentary didn't say that, but essentially that's what they said, is Pay no attention to the verse on the other side of the Bible. And we'll just go on and we'll just believe this almost blindly. And I don't want us to make that mistake. Again, I need to point this out. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the omniscience of God, the all-powerful character of God, the omnipresence of God. None of the characteristics are lost. It's just our understanding of how these things work out. And so I don't want to make that kind of mistake of giving you a character image of God and who he is and walk away with a false understanding. I want to make sure that there maybe are some questions here that we can't resolve. And that's okay. We can be comfortable with that. 
Now, this idea of salvation, as I get ready to close here, salvation is something that we are destined for. Do you know that discipleship for those who are Christians is something that we're destined for too? But you know, with salvation, some people resist salvation. Do Christians resist discipleship? You know it's true. If somebody is asked to do something, and I have to preface this by saying, I'm not looking to sign you up. I just want this for your blessing. You meditate on this. Is there something, some gift that you have that God could use and he wants you to employ it? And you're going, and no, I'm not going to. Both salvation and discipleship. God wants us to be in with both feet. You ever see somebody on the edge of a, a diving platform? They're standing up there and there's water down there. And he's down in the water. Jesus is going, I'll catch you. And you're going, it's like 30 feet down there. I don't want to. Come on, I'll catch you. It's okay. It's okay. You ever see little kids do that? And they get up to their edge and they And they finally just let loose. They go. That's what God wants us to do with salvation and with discipleship. And, of course, if we receive the salvation, the discipleship comes after that. You can't really be a disciple of Christ without the Holy Spirit. And, again, to get saved, we have to ask him to be saved. We have to repent of our sins. We have to turn around. There is the cross, and we cannot neglect the cross. We can't just be all good news all the time. There has to be the bad news with it. You have the two that balance each other out. If we don't accept Christ, then we're destined for hell. If we accept Christ, we're destined for heaven. And that's what God wants for all of us. And then secondly, the discipleship thing. All I want you to do is ask God. to say, God, do you want me to do something? And I want you to ask him with all your might. And I want you to be able to say, okay. Now, see, that's the hard part because it means you have to put your desires to the side. But if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. After that, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. And so that is the calling that we are under. My prayer for you is that you can be submissive to that. That when you turn to God and say, God, is there anything you want me to do? And he says, yes, I want you to do. Fill in the blank and you go, okay, let's go. You know, it's like, okay, it's going to be exciting. It's a wild ride. It is. And when you get to heaven, the angels are going to go, Woo-hoo! high five as you walk into heaven. They're way to go, brother, sisters. It's great. It's going to be a wonderful time. My prayer is that you just submit to that and your joy will be full. Now, what we're going to do at this time is I want the worship team to come up. We're going to sing a song. <clears throat> and as we're singing the song, if you need to repent, if you just need to say, you know, God, I've never really given my life fully to you. Just say, God, save me from my sin. Be my Lord and Savior. And if you're already a believer and you've been resisting him, saying, no, I don't want to be a disciple. No, you can't make me. You can't make me. Remember Gilligan on Gilligan, Gilligan's Island? You can't make me. You can't make me. And he did. You guys can do the same thing. You can say, okay, Lord, whatever you want for my life, I'm submitted to you. So these men are going to come forward. They're going to pass out the cup and the bread and hold on to it till we can all participate in receiving it together. And we'll have some instruction about that communion when they're done.